Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord from John 21, verses 15 through 19. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, it's hard to believe, and I have to admit, I'm kind of sad that today we conclude our series and our study of the Gospel of John. And hopefully, since we began this at the beginning of the year, you have been reading along as on Sunday mornings we have focused on some key texts and passages, but we've given you that reading plan, and it's not too late. You could go home today and read all the way through John if you want to, but today we bring this series to a close. And several weeks ago, I came across this meme. If you know what a meme is, they're very popular these days. I'm not much of a meme person myself, but I've been saving this one to the end because this is a meme about the Gospel of John, and I thought it was just perfect. So there you go. So you know, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, they... They tell most of the same stories. There's a little bit of a difference between the three. Sometimes Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they may tell you something different that the other three did not. But John just goes in a completely different direction. And in many cases, John is kind of fancy. He just tells you with more explanation, more detail. Yes, I know Matthew told you some about this, but let me tell you, there's a lot more you don't know. I know that Mark and Luke, they told you their stories, but I have to tell you, from my own bird's eye view, what was actually happening in this amazing thing that was left out. And I love this quote from Kenneth Bailey. He wrote, To enter the Gospel of John is to enter a world of theological and historical delights. And what Kenneth Bailey captured in words, this captures in picture. It's been a wonderful journey through the Gospel of John my purpose in this series all along was that we would land on John 20 on Easter Sunday, which is what we did. John 20 ends with the resurrection and then also multiple appearances of Christ to his disciples, the men and the women, and to others. And sort of 
at the end of John 20, it felt like it should be the, the right place to stop. Because this, this phrase we've been using all along is the title of our series, That You May Believe. Chapter 20 ends with John saying, But these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you come to the end of chapter 20 and you say, great job, way to finish strong. And then you turn the page and there's chapter 21. And chapter 21, because 20 seems like such an appropriate place to end, many New Testament scholars think, John added this on later. That through the Holy Spirit's leading, though he had intended to finish at the end of 20, he realized later on, near the end of his life, there was a little bit more we needed to know. We needed to know about Peter's last interactions with Christ personally before Christ ascended to heaven. And we needed to also know about John's last interactions before Christ ascended to heaven. And perhaps even, as we'll see, to clear up some some misunderstandings that were happening among the early Christians. And so John 21 begins with what for the disciples must have been a familiar place. They went back out fishing. If you were to go back to verse 1, you'll read that there are seven of the twelve together. They're in Galilee. And Peter decides on this particular occasion, you know what, I want to go back and do what's most familiar. I just want to go out and, and do something that I can do in my sleep. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other guys say, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. We'll go too. And out they go onto the Sea of Galilee in their boat. They see a man on the shore. They're not sure who he is, but he calls out to them. And thinking it's a stranger, they respond. But then this stranger tells them, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And we would think that by now it's starting to sound a little familiar with some of the other stories we've read. And upon doing so, miraculously, the net fills with fish. And John, making sure that we know all the details, tells us, I counted. There were 153 fish in that net as we pulled it in. And upon seeing this miraculous catch of fish, they know that's no stranger on the shore. It's Jesus. And we sense in Peter, who is at the center of the first part of this story, he's so anxious to make things right. Where he feels like he's wronged Jesus, he is filled with shame because he has publicly denied knowing Christ. Peter is so anxious to make things right that if you remember, he jumps out of the boat. He doesn't wait for the boat to make it to shore. He jumps out and he swims to shore so that he can be the first one at the feet of Jesus. John then tells us, after we had breakfast and Jesus taught us a little further, this was the third time that he appeared to us after he rose from the dead. So we pick up in verse 15. And what happens here for Peter, and if John had not added this chapter, we would not know this story, is love and restoration. You remember that Peter had denied Jesus three times. Publicly after Jesus was arrested, Peter is asked and, and he denies knowing Christ. And so it's not a coincidence that Jesus now gives Peter the opportunity three times to proclaim his love for him. 
And Jesus does this in full view of the other disciples. And he doesn't do this in front of them to humiliate Peter, but rather because Peter had denied Christ publicly, he's going to have the opportunity now to be restored publicly, to declare his faith and his belief in Christ in front of everyone. In public, Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me, Simon, son of John, more than these? Which has led many to ask, well, what does Jesus mean by these? Does he mean the fish? Does he mean Peter's old way of life? Peter, do you love me more than than your old life and your way of living? Or could it mean the other disciples that Peter loved? Jesus is asking, do you love me more than you love them? Or is he asking Peter, do you love me more than these other guys love me? Because Peter was so boastful, so often, Lord, no matter what happens, I'll never walk away. Lord, no matter what happens, I will never deny you. No matter what these other guys do, Lord, I will always be number one. And yet he had failed and in his own heart failed so miserably Jesus asks him, do you love me more than anything? But one thing that's easy to miss here is the way Jesus phrases this in the Greek. He uses two different words for love. The first time and the second time he asks Peter using the word agapao. If you know the word agape, it's the same root word. And agape, agapao, means more than just love. It means a divine sort of love that also comes with worship. And so Jesus is asking Peter, not just do you love me, but do you love me in a worshipful way? And yet every time Peter responds, he can't bring himself to say it. Rather than responding with that word, agapao, he responds with phileo, which is the word like Philadelphia, brotherly love. He can't yet seem to say, he can't yet seem to to discard all that shame and say, yes, I love and worship you. So he says, yes, Jesus, I love you. I love you like a brother. I love you like a friend. But I love what Jesus does the third time. The third time, rather than using that big word, since Peter just can't seem to bring himself to say it, Jesus says, phileo, do you love me then personally? It's as if Jesus is bringing this word love down to Peter's level. He can't seem to say the big word, so he says the more familial word. But listen, in bringing this down to Peter's level, Jesus is raising him up. He's meeting him where he is, and he's raising him up to the point that by the time this is over, Peter will understand, yes, Jesus, I love you like a brother, Yes, I love you like a friend. Yes, I love you personally, but also my love comes with worship. And you, Lord, have my entire life. It's an all-encompassing kind of love that Jesus presents here. But again, don't miss that it's a part of Peter's restoration. It's a part of lifting him back up. And I think here it's important for a moment that we pause before going forward and, and talk about some, some really essential applications for our own lives from what's just happened in the story. Here's the first one. 
I think one of the things that's hardest for Peter here is to show grace to himself. And there are many times in my own life where I can relate to that. I have a hard time sometimes if I have failed showing grace to myself. Believing that if Christ says I am forgiven, that I am. And saying, if Christ has forgiven me, it's okay to forgive myself. Think about Peter's circumstances here. Think about the fact that everyone around knows what he's done. And yet look just a little bit later on in the New Testament. This is the same Peter who wrote in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Where did Peter come up with this idea? That love covers over a multitude of sins except that he had experienced it. That it was the love of Christ that brought about his restoration. That he received this grace and eventually he forgave himself so that he could say to others, the love of God, love covers over a multitude of sins, even those which are, are remembered for the rest of time. Part of this also I think Peter is talking about Sometimes that forgiveness, that grace, also means we need to reconcile with others. And you may today say, that, that's where I'm struggling. I, I've made things right with God and I've learned to forgive myself, but I still have broken relationships out there somewhere. Listen again to Peter's words. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Perhaps even through the love of Christ, even the most damaged and seemingly ruined relationships can be made whole if we too live out the love and the forgiveness that we've received. Grace to yourself, but also as, by way of application, showing grace to others. It amazes me how many times in my 20 plus years of ministry, I've come across another minister who has been forgiven of a great deal of sin. Either someone who has a radical faith story that they were a really, really active sinner before they were saved, before they were redeemed, and, and they've experienced that grace. Or I've met many who were in ministry and they have fallen because they've committed some sort of an egregious sin or had some season of life where they weren't faithful. I've met these ministers who all of a sudden have forgotten the grace that's been shown to them and they show almost no grace to anyone else. You can find them on Twitter, but you can meet them in person. And, and it always hits home to me how often Jesus spoke about this to his disciples, but also to the most religious. How dare you, if God has forgiven you such a great abundance of sins, not Forgive your brother or sister even for just that one indiscretion. When Zach, our associate pastor, Zach Hudson, and I were talking about this this week, we were reminded again of, of, of our professor, Dr. Tom Wilkes, that we both had together in college. I know I've probably mentioned Dr. Wilkes in here a lot, and I'm probably going to do it more, but he was a, such a godly teacher who had such an impact on our lives. And we both remember... That in our very last class with Dr. Wilkes, 
This was the passage of scripture he used. For every student who felt called into ministry, he came back to this restoration of Peter and he reminded us of our role in the church to love the sheep just as Christ has loved us. In fact, he would say things like, if you ever find yourself saying, boy, wouldn't the church be great if not for the people? Remember, the church is the people. And the moment you stop loving the people of God and loving the sheep, you need to step away until you get that right. Grace to yourself, grace to others. And then I think one more application here is towards the word discipleship. Discipleship is a word we use in church to talk about developing people, leading people to become followers of Christ, followers of the Good Shepherd, but also discipling them in such a way that they would then lead others in the same way to make disciples who make disciples on and on and on. As Jesus is restoring Peter, he not only restores the equilibrium of forgiveness, but he also gives him this commission three times, but once again in three very unique ways. The first time after Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he says, feed my lambs. And he uses the word for little babes, little lambs. Take care of the youngest. Take care of the weakest. But then the second time, as Peter has said, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he says, shepherd my sheep. Instead of using the word lambs, he uses the, the all grown up word for sheep. And he says, just as I have shepherded you, shepherd the sheep. This is discipleship. And then the last time, remember, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the third time. And he said, yes, you know I love you. Jesus combined the two and he said, then keep feeding my sheep. Very generally, keep feeding my sheep. And I think in, implicitly here is the command and the commission and teaching my sheep to feed themselves because that's what a good shepherd does. As I have been the good shepherd for you, so now you are called to shepherd my sheep. This call and commission and command is not only for ministers, it is for the ministers. We have several ministers in our church, men and women, who we are called vocationally to shepherd the sheep. But it's also a, a call, a commission, a command to the teachers and leaders here in our church. Both men and women that you wouldn't just teach, but that you would shepherd and you would lead. But listen, it's also a call to parents that we would disciple in our homes, that we would shepherd our children and lead them and teach them as we feed them to feed themselves spiritually in the ways of God. It's a call to grandparents to shepherd and to lead, to invest and to invest in wisely. It's a commission to those of you who are the boss at your job, where, where you lead people and you lead a team that is a, a follower of Christ, you would shepherd and lead and feed the sheep. But ultimately, it's a call to every single one of us, to me and to you, because all of us as believers have been commissioned, we've been called to go and make disciples who make disciples. 
feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Be people who shepherd just as I have modeled for you. So today, it's a fair question to ask you and to ask us, how are we a part of God's kingdom work? In what ways are we part of the work that Christ is actively doing in the world? And as a part of this love and restoration, again, as as Jesus is lifting Peter up, he's raising him up. He says to him, you are no longer a fisherman. I've taught you to be a fisher of men. Now you are a shepherd. And these first followers of Christ, these first disciples, modeled this shepherding for us that we would follow in their steps. Jesus raised Peter up, beginning with love. But then it also continued in a call to action. I love the way John Chrysostom said it. He said, words are not nearly as important in this kind of restoration, Peter, if you truly love me, show it. That's what Jesus was saying. And so the next part of our text, we go from love and restoration to love and commitment. When I think about the words love and commitment in our culture, boy, have they lost their meaning. Love is something that we see as self-serving so often. It's something we do and we give if we feel like it. It's something we express or we define with our own terms, not in those that that God has given and Christ modeled. The same thing is with commitment. I'm committed until I get a better offer. I'm committed until that commitment asks me to do something I don't feel like doing. And that, that cultural misunderstanding and misappropriation has been building for a long time. Just a couple weeks ago was the 161st anniversary of the game of life. Many of you have probably played the game of life. When this game originally came out in 1860, the goal was to attain all the virtues and to avoid all the vices. So your goal was to attain virtues, things like honesty and honor and bravery. The vices that you were to avoid were things like a life of crime or disgrace or idleness. But then in the 1950s, the game was rebranded and now what's the goal? To get rich. The goal of the game of life is to have a big house. And when I hear people talk about the 1950s, because I wasn't there, I hear it talked about as the good old days. Those were the days when Everybody was a Christian. Those were the days where everybody went to church. But even then, in the good old days, our so-called Christian culture far too easily settled for lesser things, for lesser purposes, trading true God-honoring virtue with temporary and self-serving pursuits. Those temptations are still there today. But the call that Christ gives is to love and to commitment. And don't miss what he says to Peter next. He says this commitment is going to take you into some very difficult, dangerous, and ultimately deadly places. 
there's going to come a time where you will no longer have the freedom to go where you want and do what you want, but you will be tied up. You will have somebody dress you as if being dressed for execution. And you will stretch out your hands. Being taken somewhere where you don't want to go. History tells us that Peter was crucified. He gave his life for Christ. And he too was crucified. But because he did not feel worthy to die the same kind of death as Jesus. He was crucified upside down. He stretched out his hands. And he, he truly gave his life. Right now there are many people asking the question, will, will we ever be asked to stretch out our hands? Will, will we as followers of Christ ever be asked to, to, to go places we don't want to go and if we say no, to be forced and to give up our lives? This quote from Campbell Morgan it is so appropriate because shepherding is not always a safe role. Campbell Morgan wrote, Shepherding the sheep is not always the sweet and soft pastoral avocation of going through flowery meadows and beside still waters. Sometimes it means leaving the fold and going on the mountains wild and bare and grappling with the wolf and allowing the wolf to bury his fangs in you in order to save a lamb. Being a disciple, being a shepherd can be costly. And will that time come for us? I have people all the time, especially lately, sending me articles, giving me books, talking about all the persecution that's probably going to come our way. If and when that time comes, if at some point you and I are called to stretch out our hands, the same command that Christ gave to Peter, not just here, but the very first time they met, is the same command he gives to us. Follow me. And I think we make a mistake when we put all of our focus on that which is outside and we focus on the world and we no longer look inwardly at our own hearts and we no longer have our eyes focused on Christ. Jesus says to Peter, a dark and difficult season of your life is going to come. But my command to you then will be as it is now and as it has always been. You follow me. One of the questions that we were discussing this passage we like to ask is, could Peter have said no at this point? I mean, could Peter have said to Jesus, you know, knowing all of that, I think I'm going to pass. It's been a good run. The last three years, I've seen a lot of amazing things and I've learned a lot. But, you know, Jesus, I was just out in the boat and we caught 153 fish and it's a pretty good start. And so I'm just going to go back because, you know, with all that you've said, I just don't want to go forward. I don't know if Peter could have said no or not. It's an interesting discussion to have. Some people find that more interesting than others. The most important question is not... Could Peter have said no? The most important question to me is, is what Jesus said right? And is what Jesus said, did, did, it, did it happen? Did Peter glorify God as Jesus said he would through his life and his death? 
That's the question. And the answer is absolutely yes. Peter glorified God through his death. Just, this is what Jesus was talking about. And he glorified God through his life. And none of that would have happened if Peter had not been faithful to this simple commission, call and command, follow me. And after all of this, after all of this discussion that John gives us about Peter, after many weeks spent in the Gospel of John, the story comes to an end. And it comes to an end in a very unique way because right after Peter hears this, things are going to get tough for you in the future. He turned around, he saw John right behind them, and he asked in very much Peter's style, right? He asked, Lord, what about him? Did he ask this because he cared about John? What about him? I hope nothing bad happens to my brother and my friend. They were very close. Did he ask this because, because what Jesus had just told him filled him with a fear of the unknown, so he just wants more information? Does he ask this because, once again, the competition is there? Because Peter and, and James and John, they always seem to be competing with each other. Maybe it's all of those things together. But Jesus answered him, verse 22, why does it matter? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. There it is again. Peter, your only focus needs to be on the responsibility I've given to you. On nothing else. The same calling I've been giving you all along. You must follow me. Before we come to the very last verses of John. I want to read this text to you from 2 Peter. This comes very near the end of Peter's life. He's writing after coming very close to the end of his race. An incredibly faithful service as an apostle, as a shepherd, as a leader. But I don't want you to think about any of that as I read this. I'm just going to read it without comment except to say, as I read it, I want you to ask yourself, is this even the same guy? Is this really the same man who we've read about throughout the Gospel of John and we read about in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Look at the transformation that's happened. Hear the words of Peter the Apostle. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen to this part. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories 
when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Is this even the same guy? Look at the work the Lord has done. Look at how faithfully Peter finished the race. And this is not just true of Peter. John has told us also, I was an eyewitness. I saw these things. Not only John, but the other disciples, the other apostles, sans Judas, they continued to fulfill the calling on them. They continued to be faithful, to make disciples. They went all over the known world proclaiming that Christ is risen from the dead. Add to the apostles, the women and others who followed Jesus and the first believers in the book of Acts. And every single one of them who, just as John wrote, believed in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God and received life in His name, every single one of them stuck to their story to the end. They never backed off of their testimony that Christ had risen from the dead, that all the things they had seen and heard, that the truth that Christ Himself had implanted in their hearts, they never backed off their story, even in the face of the worst punishments, is imprisonment and death. And there is no way that could have happened had they not been faithful to that simple command, no matter what, you must follow me. And so John then brings us to the close, and here's probably a clue as to one of the reasons he added this chapter. Because of what Jesus said about what if I want John to just keep on living, a rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. Don't you love how John always talks about himself in the third person? Jesus did not say, though, that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? If I want this to be the case, why does it matter? You must follow me. And then here are the actual final words of the Gospel of John. This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down, and we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. John ends as he began with theological and historical delight. He ends this gospel which is so unique in every way with words that we can only describe as poetic. We can never fully contain or comprehend all that Jesus did. And yet in the midst of these last words, the reminder comes twice. You must follow me. So today, that is our invitation. Wherever you are today, that's the call. Follow me from Jesus. That may be for you the first time that you take that first step. You say, I've never followed Jesus at all. I've never given my life to him. Then maybe today that's the call you need to hear Jesus say, follow me. And today you can take the first step to do that. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long, long time. But today you needed to hear that again to renew that commitment. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. 
wherever you lead me, wherever it takes me, no matter the cost, without distraction, care, with no other priority but you. Yes, Lord Jesus, I will follow you today. Maybe you need to renew that commitment. For all of us, the calling we have today is the same one that Peter heard, that John heard, that Mary Magdalene and the other first disciples heard. It started the very first day they all met, and it continues to ring out to the church today. You must follow me. Would you pray with me?